0: Greg wire and Dan Beast are smart enough to know better.
1: Welcome to Smart Enough to Know Better, a podcast of science. Comedy and ignorance. And who's that voice on the other side of the room? I'm Dan Beeston. And relaxed and calm. And I am Greg War. Goodness me, Dan, it feels like five or six weeks since we've ever talked together. I am finally back from my overseas vacation.
2: That's right. Where I saw a fish ladder. A fish ladder? Yes. To, 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 and a fish bicycle? No. Oh. No, fish can't ride bicycles. Oh. A fish ladder is when you, you dam up... A river, yes, and the, the the fish that have to swim up river, like your Just curse you. trout, salmon, salmon, sturgeon, s- salmon can't jump like an eighty foot wall. Yeah, they're not trying can, hard enough. No, well they, no, they're not to... trying hard enough. Yes, they, they do. And if they tried as hard as they could, they'd snap something. <sighs> Because I went to Scotland, yes, and they went, oh, actually, salmon is pretty important to our economy, mm-hmm. so let's not f that up. Yes, what they do is they build a set of pools, each one slightly higher than the next one, yes, with a tunnel, an underwater tunnel between each one, right. And the salmon can sort of rush and rush and rush and swim up the tunnel, and then every, I don't know, take a break. Eight, well, every eight steps or so, yes. the pool is big enough that the current isn't so strong that they have to really go like the
1: billios, in order yes. to stay there. So they sort of hunker down there. It's like a fish motel. They, they can hang out there for a bit. And, yeah, like a pit stop. Pit stop, yes. Oh, yes, a toilet break. Yeah, just Yep. And, so, and then
2: they zip up, so they sort of zigzag back and forth up the bank in Ooh. these pools and then finally get up into the top bit and they don't have to jump, do the 80-metre jump.
1: That's right. Oh, there you go. A fish ladder. Yeah. Well, Scotland's all sorts of scientific, because that's like the home of the... Um, Mountain. Uh, the mountains were invented there. Mountains were invented there, supposedly. Yeah. No, the steam engine was invented in Scotland, I do believe. And uh, James Watt was Scottish. There's a, lot of, a lot of the scientific progress of the 20th century came from Scotland. So it's a very, it's a very scientific place.
2: Yeah, people have to stay inside for 10 months of the year, just sitting around thinking or about cool stuff. Or otherwise yeah.
1: you die. You, you literally die yeah, if you go no, outside. Very little sports in Scotland. That's, not the, that's not the weather that kills you. It's just the other you know, Scottish people. They will kill you. They'll just with kill you. With snow. With snow. Oh, ironically. Snowing. Yeah, that's right. Ironically? <laughs> that's not ironic at all. Not really. But it's, it's like, I'm thinking of
2: using both ironic and literally when it's incorrect to use them. Because I know it. the difference. Just to now. annoy the people. Yeah, basically because I don't care. <laughs> I literally don't care about it. Hang on, wait, you you do? See, now you're questioning it. Now now you're
1: not sure. I see. Well, let me tell you about my scientific thing. I learned something very interesting today. Yes? In fact, only moments ago. Let's Let's be perfectly honest. Moments ago, finally worked this out before we started recording this very bit. And that was about light. Now, I didn't discover this. This has been discovered much earlier. You discovered the discovery. Though. I discovered the discovery, and then we discovered that my discovery was wrong, and now we fixed it. Then we had a fight. And then we had a fight. Then we made up. And, then we had a... and, and so... now we've got the truth. And now we've got the truth. You, we, and you will never hear this, ladies and gentlemen, unless Dan puts it all at the end of us Is faffing about for an hour. But anyway, the question is, how long have we known that light is not infinite? Light doesn't travel at an infinite speed. Light travels about 3 by 10 to the 8 meters per second, and that's fast. But compared to the size of the universe, that's, that's not very fast. <laughs> yeah, and compared to your car, it's not that
2: fast. Your car is amazing.
1: My car is pretty amazing. It does get Lawrence transformed by being crushed in the direction of travel. Ha, <laughs> ha, Einsteinian relativity joke. Yeah. Uh, His
2: headlights have to be tinted. Uh, <laughs> red, so that when he goes fast enough, they be- go back to white. That's not
1: how it works. Light from the front of my car always travels at the speed of light, even if my car travels close to the speed of light. Don't start this. Don't confuse this if
2: now. If he drives his car up a train that's travelling at the speed of light. <laughs> <laughs> it's still travelling.
1: We're not going there. We're not going there. All right. So we're talking about how, but how long have we known that light is a finite speed? And it really shocked me. I discovered this today. There's, I'm doing some research on else, something else. It was discovered in 16... Or demonstrated, I should say. People wondered for a long time in 1675. 1675! They didn't even have houses then. They didn't... <laughs> <laughs> they na- barely created fire. <laughs> <laughs> they had many, many cool things in 1675. Thank you very much. And dysentery, sort of, cholera. Uh, they, had, they had telescopes, obviously. Yes, you know, oh, yeah, it was that like sort of good, good period of time. And this guy called Ole Rømer, uh, who was a Danish astronomer, mm-hmm. he came up with a really, really cool idea of how to, to see if light, or to demonstrate if light was infinite or finite. Now, people tried before him. People obviously tried. They've done experiments like putting a lantern on top of a mountain mm-hmm. and, and then another lantern on top of a mountain and basically try and see how long it takes the flashes to get between the mountains. And you could do it in today's world. You could fire a laser, and people do, yeah. and how long it bounces back. But, of course, you're talking about opening a lantern and pressing a button on your flo- or looking yeah. at the clock. Yeah, we you could do it with sound. We could do it with sound. What? Yeah. No, well, is You measure the speed of sound. Yes, 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 yes that's Sa- right. Sound is slow. Sound, what's that, about 1,200? Meters, uh, kilometers an hour in air, something oh, like that. I thought it was 3,000. It, uh, it's no, the speed of. No, because the jet,
2: the Concorde. Yes. Would, would travel at about the speed of sound, sound was, wouldn't it? We, and uh, I saw a
1: Concorde! <laughs> In France, That's it. not 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 flying. It no, wasn't just, moving. They're not allowed sure. to move anymore. No, no, no. They're... But it
2: was up on blocks.
1: That's right. <laughs> and I took a picture of <laughs> it. Someone stole its wheels. Scotland's a dangerous place. Oh, <laughs> like... That's it. Anyway, so old Roma he came up with this really cool idea. He said, "Okay, look, let's look at Jupiter, which is a long distance away." They knew the solar system was big. They didn't know how big at that time. They mm-hmm. couldn't. They couldn't actually measure the size of the solar system at that point. But they knew that it was a long distance away. Just mm. they, 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 well, they suspected anyway. So he said, "Okay, I." Io didn't call it Io, but the innermost moon of Jupiter. When it goes transits behind a Jupiter, they didn't name it at that point in time. They didn't know it was. They didn't have a name. It was just a Galilean moon. That's far it He, the oh, innermost. Right. He has called it the innermost moon. Hmm. There you go. So he didn't know how to name at that point. It's uh, yeah. no one. No one had told him. Obviously. Well, look, the Earth didn't
2: name their moon until a couple of well, podcasts un- ago. That's very true. <laughs> Two handsome
1: fellows got round to that, finally. Yes. Very
2: trustworthy. <laughs>
1: That's very good. So how is Colin? Anyway, we're going off. We're going off track tra- for Colin. Anyway, so what he worked out, he said, look, if light was infinite, as the Earth moved in its orbit towards Jupiter, if light was infinite, then when Io popped out from behind Jupiter, it'd be the same amount of time each time, whether they're going towards it or going away, because infinite. Because it just instantly touches your eyes yep. from Io. But he worked out that if, if by moving to the Earth, moving towards, in its orbit, towards Jupiter, Earth is, is there, Io goes behind Jupiter, the Earth keeps moving, and it moves according to uh, Roma about 210 times its own diameter towards Jupiter, and then it pops out. And because that's a shorter distance between Jupiter and the Earth, it takes a shorter amount of time for a finite speed to get there. So what you're looking at, it appears to be sped up. Yes. yes, it appeared... Like a movie that's sped up a little bit. Yeah, that's right. And it, it, it appeared 22 minutes out from when it should have. So 22 minutes. They were expecting it 22 minutes later and it turned up 22 minutes earlier than it should. As in, they, oh, there's Io. 22 minutes earlier than we thought. Because they knew that it was 42 and a half hours to, to go round and around. So by looking at it and by calculating. So they realised... They do this over and over again, this experiment, and they realised that it was about 22 minutes. Now, he turned out to be slightly wrong. It was Edwin Halley fixed it up because and, and, his clock was a bit wrong and more accurate clocks pointed out it was about 17 minutes. Mm. And that meant that they They'd could... They not s- enough sand? They'd sand too big? Sand it's, too fine? Well, no, <laughs> at this point they had mechanical clocks, right. but, but they just didn't have an accurate enough clock. And Edwin Halley, being of the rich bugger that the he candle's was... Candle slightly taller than it was yeah. supposed to be. <laughs> a man going, one elephant, two elephant, <laughs> three <laughs> elephant, four <laughs> elephant... <laughs> And so he managed to work it out. So they, they worked out the, they demonstrated that light had a finite speed. Now, Roma said that it was about two hundred thousand kilometres an hour, which is pretty, pretty good. And then they worked out later on that it's, it's actually faster than that. But anyway, yes, um, and so, they, but he sort of worked it out that it was close enough. It was in the ballpark anyway. Mm-hmm. And then, but more to the point, they worked out that it was a finite speed, and that led to the world changing scientifically. Now, what was funny was, at the time, people didn't believe him. When you read the papers originally, they kind of go, like, oh, yes, he worked this out, everyone was so happy with it, but they didn't. They didn't believe it at all. They, people, Cassini, didn't like it. He said, no, that's not true, and even though they had a bit of a wager, let's, let's say a bit of a wager, see so he is right, mm-hmm. Cassini was wrong, because he said it was infinite, and he went, oh, I don't believe you. I don't care about the evidence I've just seen. He said, no, and it took about 30 years for people to go, oh, no, no, actually, light has a finite speed. And now, of course, we we definitely know it's based on relativity. I mean, relativity is based on that concept. The only thing in the universe that is constant is Dan's disdain for me and the speed of light. Actually, mine sort of more
2: tracks along a sine wave. (laughs) It's a roller coaster. (laughs)
1: Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I am Greg Waugh from Smart Enough to Know Better, a podcast of science, comedy and ignorance. The person we're here to talk about is not me, is actually Dr. Askov, Dr. John Askov. For another round of applause, well done.
3: I, I think
0: we, we probably ought to settle this and just oh. work on, on first-name terms. Oh, first-name so terms. A, oh, okay. a bit formal. You know, just Dr. John, looking I'm looking up to see who you're talking well, about. Well, I mean,
1: professor. Know. I mean, he's got to the professor part yet. But before we start, ladies and gentlemen, for those who don't know my podcast, uh, I actually have a partner in crime, Dan Beeston, who normally does it with me. But he's away. But he has, he has actually created an introduction, a video introduction, which hopefully will start any moment. So this will explain everything, hopefully. Hello and welcome to episode 76
2: of Smart Enough to Know Better, a podcast of science, comedy and ignorance. I'm Dan Beeston and La Petite Homme, la c'est Gregoire. I am sadly not there for our very first live interview. I am sadly on a beautiful holiday in summer in Toulouse, France, eating croissants like a crazy man. (laughs) But I'm sure that Greg will do an excellent job. And now that I think about it, There's probably less chance of someone accidentally dropping an F-bomb in front of a live audience, if I'm not there. Today, we'll be talking to Dr John Ascoff, who is very involved in the dengue fever vaccine that I myself partook of a few years ago. And Dr Ascoff, you'll be pleased to know that for the entire duration that I was in the Highlands of Scotland, I was not attacked by a single dengue fever mosquito, so (laughs) hats off. All right, well, I will let Greg get on with it. I'm sure he will do an excellent job. Or, as the French like to say, Google a translation error. Au revoir.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Dan. And now you can see the level of our podcast. All right, but let's move on from there. Yes. So just first up, with though, we have to make. there's been a terrible error made right at the start of the interview. Did, you had nothing to do with the dengue fever vaccine, did no, you? No,
0: no, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll get back to that, though, I think. Yep, well, yep, yep. Let's start out. Who are you and, and what do you do?
0: It's an interesting call, isn't it? I mean, I'm getting almost to my use-by date. And <laughs> uh, I was just thinking how, you know, you define yourself by what you do for a living. Well, I I get paid to teach, I get paid to do research. Mm -hmm. Probably in my heart of hearts, I'm probably a tourist. And I've got a a, a tremendous curiosity about things, and so I've had the good luck to... Wind up with a, a career that lets me ask questions in all sorts of interesting places. It's been a program of continuing education, and you know, not just science, but sort of social and culture and everything else as Which well. Which fits
1: very well with the upcoming National Science Week and Cafe Scientifique as well, okay. inspiring Australia. Yeah. So inspiring uh, people into science is something you're into.
0: Yeah, I think so, and it's an interesting exercise too. And very early in my teaching career, we, you know, we have to have all our teaching assessed and somebody wrote a comment that I was basically a nice guy who was under misapprehension that the subject I taught was as much fun for them as it was for me and uh, so I thought that was okay because at least they got the message that what, what I was talking about gave me a buzz and, mm-hmm. and you know, I enjoyed it uh, so yeah, I think teaching is a really satisfying pastime, and particularly if you've got a, a chance to be teaching in an area that, that interests you, mm. that you're passionate about, and, and sure. so on. And I think the area we play within infectious diseases, there's a lot of mileage ahead of us, mm. and there's a lot of things to do, and you tend to do it in a context which is not western suburbs of Brisbane. Yes. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I just digress, I've, I've worked in Cambodia a bit, and you know, the lady that I was traveling around there, had her father and brother killed by the lunatics in the Khmer Rouge. Mm. They came back to Phnom Penh, um, somebody else was living in their house Mm. and she started her life all over again. Mm. And you know, there's no great axe to grind here, you know, she's got on with it and whatever else. A couple of other people I've worked with have gone through that sort of crisis and it's, it's interesting just to, you know, be sitting down having a male or something, with people like that. Mm, mm. Um, So, you know, we're there to do a job, Mm. but you're getting a perspective on somebody else's life that that I certainly wouldn't have got if if I'd been just toiling away in suburban Brisbane. Okay, so I'm going to...
1: We're going to stop there for a moment because we're going to lead into what you actually work on, but I'm going to throw it to the audience at this point. We're going to do a bit of a a query. You didn't expect to be asked questions, but don't panic, it's going to be painless. So in the world, I want you to to name the number 10 most dangerous animal. The animal that has killed the most people, well, the 10th in the line, you are to say. What do you think the 10th would be?
3: It has to
1: be an animal. has to be an animal. Hippo. Hippo. It's not hippos. At 100 people a year, it's lions, I say. Get, this all makes sense. So, at number 10, it's lions. And then what do you think at number 9? Snakes. But Not snakes. Snakes are actually much further down the list. We'll come back to snakes. Any other guesses? It's 130 people a year. A tiger. Not tigers. Tigers don't actually make the list. Tigers are much lower than 10 there's only a few of them left in the world. I'll tell you, you're never going to guess it. It's deer. Deer, as in accidents, deer leaping into cars, trying to get onto your highways. Canadians getting killed by deer all the time. It's a terrible thing. Okay, number eight. Someone said it before hippos. 500 people a year are killed by hippos. More than lions. More than lions. Number seven, crocodiles. 1,000 people a year are killed by crocodiles. Now we get to the fun ones. Number five and number six, that's 10,000 each. And it's the assassin bug and the tsetse fly, sleeping sickness and Chagas disease. So now we're getting up to there. Oh, we're getting to the dangerous things now. And number four, we have four, it's dogs with rabies at 25,000 people a year. There you go. Man's best friend? Mm, I don't think so. And then at number three, we come to snakes, much, much higher. 50,000 people a year are killed by snakes in the world. Isn't that crazy? And then what do you think number two might be? Number two? Mosquito. Not mosquitoes, no. You're too quick, they're number one. <laughs> yeah, they are. you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. The second one is human beings. Human beings kill half a million other human beings every year, but are defeated soundly by... Mosquitoes, mosquitoes with between half a million to a million people a year. And that's where Dr. John Ascob, we'll just call you John from now yeah, on. that <laughs> <right. Yes. laughs> Professor Dr. John, that's where John Ascob comes in. So you,
0: you don't actually help the mosquitoes, do you? No. <laughs> but when I saw this competition starting, I, I saw that, I think it came out of Nature or Science mm. the table. And so I, I photocopied it and put it on a notice board because it just reminds everybody how relevant we are when we mix with the cancer research people. Yes. It's a race? That's a dark race. It is a dark race. (laughs) No, so we're not helping them. And I'm not really an entomologist either. I mean, I I guess I'm a a bit of a fatalist, really. I think that we have absolutely no hope at all, really, of doing much about mosquitoes. And that's the interview for the night. Thank you very much for coming. (laughs) We're just going to give up here and all go hide under our beds. But I, I think... We do have a really good chance of doing something about the disease they cause in humans. So you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a vaccine person, I'm an immuniser from white back, right. so gotcha. you know the nice thing about uh, a vaccine if it works is that carry your protection with you wherever you go, mm-hmm. so you're not relying on some council or government agency to be spraying insecticide or doing all those sorts of things. Yes. And you know, if you just look here in, in Brisbane, practically the council has no hope of eradicating mosquitoes in Brisbane. Mm. And even if you did control get rid of all mosquitoes in Brisbane, they'd blow in from somewhere else anyway.
1: And I guess also the problem with wiping out a species is you have no idea right. what knock on effects the there will change. be. That's exactly right. so yeah. you don't yeah.
0: want to kill them. No, that's you, right. You want to be able to control the diseases that they carry. That's right. Okay. And the vets have done a great job, you know I mean the veterinarians have completely eradicated the the veterinary equivalent of measles. And, you know, we could do it too if we got our act together. Yeah, I I think, you know, you probably avoid the mosquitoes if you can. Mm, It's a sort. Yeah, that's right. But the aim of the game is really find some way of protecting the individual, so they just take their protection with them.
1: Okay, so what diseases do mosquitoes pass? What are the most dangerous ones? Well,
0: I guess malaria is the the real upfront one. And Mm -hmm. I I think it's a a bit of a ticking time bomb, I mean... Mm. We've got anopheles in Australia, we could have malaria in Australia uh, quite easily. Oh. but the We don't at the moment? No, you get a bit of transmission with people coming back from time to time. Mm. But I think the real problem is, is drug resistance. Mm. So there's been resistance appearing in malaria mm. and it's a bit like HIV. So there's now a move to particularly in places like Thailand and, and Myanmar and so on, where the resistance is appearing, mm. that they need to take trivalent drugs. Right. And, you know, it's the developing world, and China's got an enormous amount of monovalent anti-malarials, which they're dumping in the developing world, and so you can buy a monovalent medicine for a fraction of the price of the trivalent. Mm. And so the areas where you're seeing drug resistance appearing, people are not getting a trivalent vaccine because there's an enormous illegal market in monovalent vaccines. Mm. Monovalent drugs, rather. Right. And so drug resistance in malaria is, is going to become... It's on the rise it is and it's going to become yeah. a, a bigger and bigger problem um so that's and then i think things like yellow fever which is, mm. is getting back in, into the human area again mm. the panama canal wouldn't have been finished if they hadn't developed a yellow fever vaccine right because people were dying from malaria and yellow fever faster than they could hire staff and so it was really only once you got a yellow fever vaccine mm. that the panama canal was finished and then, you know, we, we move into the things that interest us, like Dingy and so on, which are, are a bit
1: more of a challenge. Uh, my, my colleague, was Dan, was talking about how he had... He was one of the human trials for the, the dengue fever vaccine, which John uh, yeah. didn't work on. But we, we, we were invited in, and we both went in, and we were both accepted as part of this trial. And then they worked out I'd lived in North Queensland. And they went, well, no, because we have no idea if you're infected already. We can't tell, so you have to go away. And I was very sad. But my, my friend, Dan, he was actually given the vaccine. And after two years, he was told, actually more than that, three years, he was told, yes. Is all blind, of course, done properly. And he was told that he actually has the vaccine in his body. So he likes to say that he has a superpower now, that he's, he's immune, like Superman. Uh, and he, with Superman, bullets bounce off him. Uh, Dan uh, Dengue fever bounces right off him. So he's, he's, very, he's very, very, very proud of his
0: superpower. I mean, dengue has a relevance to, to us in Australia and, and in, in Brisbane. You know, dengue was a disease of the tropics for a long time. And Charters Towers in North Queensland had a, a gold mining boom in the 80s and 90s. A lot of people coming and going. And the first people anywhere in the world to die from the hemorrhagic form of dengue died in Chardis Towers in, in 1896. And then in 1903, there was a big outbreak in Brisbane. 30% of the workforce were off work with dengue. It started in Spring Hill. They know where the houses were. They know where the first cases appeared. So the government did what the government always does in a crisis. It
1: wasn't sorry, It wasn't near like a game day or something. Oh, yeah, 30% of the city is dengue. No! yeah, no. yeah. 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 <coughs>
0: Don't make light, don't make light, sorry. The the government did what the government always does and set up a committee to look at it. But they were lucky that the guy that chaired it was a doctor called Bancroft who lived in Alderley. And in those days Alderley was just a rural area and he realised that people who lived at Alderley and worked in Brisbane were getting dengue whereas the people who lived at Alderley weren't. And so he had a guess as to which mosquito might be carrying the virus. And so he collected some of those mosquitoes, fed them on a dengue patient and the really cunning bit was he realised the mosquitoes <laughs> need some time for the virus to grow before they could pass it. So he kept the mosquitoes alive on dates and banana, and about five or seven days later he let them bite five normal healthy people of Alderley and two got dengue. And that was the first clear demonstration that that was the mosquito that carried hang, dengue.
1: Hang on, hang on. <laughs> so he he gave two people dengue fever? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> That's um, awful, but
0: you wouldn't be allowed nowadays to go, come here, have some dengue. It'd be difficult. <laughs> it'd yeah. be difficult, yes. And, and the thing that saved Brisbane from dengue really is sewerage. <laughs> you know, we sewered the city. Mm. And so you no longer have backyard loose. Mm. And so there's not the, the moisture in the dark places and whatever else for the mosquitoes to live. Mm. Up until 1925, we had dengue every year in Brisbane, by transmission. And as the hygiene improved, it sort of went north. And now we get regular dengue in the north bringing the forest backwards and forwards. I have very
1: strong memories of living in North Queensland and dengue season coming upon us and going out and emptying tyres and things like that. If you've lived in the north, then you've had that experience. It's just built into your life of, oh, there's a tyre. Empty it out, get the water out of it. Go and empty the dog bowl, that sort of stuff. Any pools of water were just like, no.
0: So, yeah, very much a part of my life. I'm not sure how effective that is. I mean, <laughs> Singapore is spending $168,000 a day on dengue control doing that sort of thing. Mm and they can't prevent dengue. Right. Um, And so if you're on an island, you've got Mm. the sort of organisation they've got. Mm, And the mosquito is very cunning. I mean, they were finding people getting dengue four storeys up, Mm. and nobody could work out how the mosquito would get to four storeys, and it's all sorts of things about the wind carrying it up. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Singapore, but it's quite crowded, and so they dry your washing, you hang it on a pole Mm. off the side of the building. Well, you've got to have a pipe to put the pole in, and the pipe gets rain in it, and the mosquitoes are breeding in the bits of pipe that the people are hanging there washing Oh, Just when you think you're in front of this, this there's a cunning little detour the mosquitoes taken Mm. to get round that that loop. That's incredible. Can we just jump back a little bit, just to give some information about the mosquito?
1: So do all mosquitoes bite humans?
0: Is Uh, that that something they all do? No. I guess it's not a black and white issue. So (laughs) there's some that are very keen to feed on humans. So Mm. the mosquito that, for example, carries dengue... Mm just feeds on humans. Right. Okay. So, you know, that makes it a. Uh, so they were not actually uh, feed on another animal, they only feed on no, human beings. no. Yeah. no. Okay. And you now I also have an interest in, in Ross River virus. Mm. And so we've got probably 20 or 30 different mosquitoes that will move Ross River virus around. Mm. And, you know, they probably feed on native animals and domestic animals and humans. And, right. and a lot of them are fairly opportunistic. So it varies by mosquito, really. OK,
1: that's interesting to know.
0: And is it both male and female as well? No, for a mosquito to lay eggs, it needs to take a blood meal. Mm. And so, you know, if she feeds, gets a blood meal and that's a prompt them to lay the eggs. Ah,
1: oh, right. Oh, there um, you go. You're helping, you're helping the next generation of mosquitoes. Yes, <laughs> yes that's right. yeah. There you go. Oh, okay, so it's only the girls that bite. Yeah, that's right. Right, okay. okay. Excellent.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that's not much use to you. I mean, you really can't wander around for female mosquitoes. <laughs> but... Yeah, that's the nature of the beast. So
1: in the past, you you, you worked in microbiology? Yeah. And then you
0: moved into immunology. I can't say the word. No, I guess it was, again, I'm probably about to offend a a bunch of professions, but I I, I did a a PhD in the UK in a department of cancer research. Mm. And we came back to Australia and I was pretty disillusioned with, with cancer research. Mm. and applied for a job at the Queensland Institute of Medical Research. Well, now, now I had an interest principally in immunology there. Mm. So I was offered a cancer project or a virus project. Mm. And I took the virus project not because I wanted it, but I didn't want to do cancer research. <laughs> and it, it was a, a real stroke of luck because in those days the director just discovered the ulcerative virus. Mm. And we used to see about four or five cases a year. Mm. And he said, yeah, do you want to go away and have a bit of a look at that? And one of the problems we had very early in the
1: beginning... So, sorry, can I just interrupt? I apologise to interrupt again. Ross River, can you just give a rundown quickly of Ross River? People might
0: not know what it is. Yeah, okay. Is it like a fatal disease? Is no, it? it's not. And, and the custom with a lot of these viruses is you name them after where you find them. And so this one was taken out of mosquitoes in Townsville, it's on the banks of Ross River, so it's called Ross River. virus. So if you get a Ross River virus infection, you can have a bit of a fever, you'll have a headache, and you'll have arthritis for 30 or 40 weeks. Right. And then when you get over it, you'll never get sick again. Okay. And so, one of the first things we needed then was to get some patients. And so, we developed a, a simple, easy blood test. Mm. And once that was available, we went from five cases a year to five thousand a year. Right. So the people, <laughs> the people had all, all always been getting sick, mm. but without a diagnostic test, you couldn't identify those people. So right. what started off as being of no real consequence then started to become of, of some significance.
1: Yeah, that's a large percentage. And yeah. so it was,
0: a, it was a fortunate thing to happen early in a young boy's career <laughs> to have something go from being pretty insignificant to being recognized. And it was now a national notifiable disease. and mm. so, on. Mm. so I guess the, the interest drifted into the roster of the virus and some mm. of the Australian viruses. Mm. And then I got a, a fellowship to go and do some work in Germany and it was a bit of a uh, around the world ticket really and I had never really been to Asia and I'd always wanted to go to Burma and so I wrote in a week to go to Burma to have a look at dengue Mm. and Burma in those days was just unbelievable, really third world completely. Mm. I got food poisoning on the day Charles and Di got married and got put in hospital and I wondered whether that was a real good career move. And and anyway, I saw some dengue patients, mm. and so that was the beginning of a, a collaboration on dengue in, in now Myanmar, which is still mm. going on. Mm. Uh, so we're still working there. So the dengue interest came through there, and again we got interested in diagnostics. Mm. You know, if you can't diagnose a patient properly, you can't treat them properly. You've got no reasonable data. and So, mm. um, and again, you know, I mean, it, it, it's been a real education. So I was there through the dark days in eighty-eight and ninety, mm. uh, and the political change and things. Mm. I learned a lot about. You no other parts of the world that I wouldn't have done again, you know, I'd still been here.
1: And the people, as so those places in the world, I mean, they
0: need a lot more help than we do. I mean, they, they don't have the infrastructure to keep the people It's interesting, s- though, safe. at the same time, I think if I was going to have severe dengue, I'd probably go to a hospital in Bangkok, Rangoon, or, or Jakarta. Right. Because certainly in Burma in those days, people would do, would do medicine, and then they'd go to England to do their postgraduate training. Mm. And they were very, very capable clinicians. You know, they were working with dengue all the time. And so they managed the patients very, very well. I mean, if, if you had severe dengue and you got into hospital in Rangoon before you were dying, mm. you had about half a percent, 1% percent chance you'd die. So, you know, the clinicians managed very, very well in a very resource-poor setting. Mm. So they were a very capable bunch of people. Mm. But it certainly wasn't high-tech stuff. Yeah.
1: Okay. So you were saying earlier on about... You're, you don't steal. That the answer is not to kill a mosquito or even find the disease. It's about basically blocking
0: the disease from from hurting mm. you in the, in the first place. Yep. Using, I assume, vaccinations. Well, I mean, it can be public health too. I mean, one of the interesting things in, in Burma when the military took over was they collected the garbage, and it's a bit like sewer in Brisbane. Mm. So when I first went to, to Rangoon, all the all the garbage was just put on the street corners. So there was plenty of rubbish and breeding places for mm. Aedes aegypti, which is the mosquito that carries dengue. And there was dogs everywhere that had rabies and so on. And so one of the things that the military did was to shoot all the dogs. And so the rabies problem went away. Mm. And because there was no garbage, Mm. there weren't as many breeding places for the mosquitoes. Mm. And now the standard of living has risen, And so people are air conditioning and screening houses and things. Mm. And so the number of cases in children has gone down. Mm. But we're starting to see more adult dengue because people are not getting all their infections early in life. It's now stringing out.
1: Right, okay. So in Australia, is getting a dengue fever vaccine a standard thing? We don't have one. We don't have one. Uh, uh-huh. Aha!
0: And and this, I mean this, this is another interesting set of concepts here, and I, I really feel very strongly about childhood immunisation right. and so on. And the vaccine that you guys had was developed by a very interesting American guy and then bought by Sanofi Pasteur, which is a big French vaccine company. Mm. And they've just done a very big trial in Thailand, which failed, and... Right. And I don't think it was a problem. I, I think they've probably spent $200 million so far on this. And I don't think the vac- it, was, it was a problem with the vaccine. I think it was a problem the way they used it. Right, yes. So if you have a polio immunisation here, you take your kids along to a GP or to a council clinic and you get the vaccine and away you go and that's it. Now, that doesn't work in India and Africa and places where there's a lot of polio. So you've got to have national immunisation days so the whole country gets immunised over a period of three or four weeks. Right. And and that starts to work. And I think with dengue, they're going to have to do the same thing. So is that just to explain,
1: is that because so many people already have polio, by vaccinating some people, you're still going to have it out there in the population?
0: No, there's 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 an issue of herd immunity, which is important. So everybody who gets a vaccine is not individually protected. So one of the concerns with measles and whooping cough here at the moment is that if if the proportion of the Brisbane community who's had a measles vaccine gets below 80%, mm. the whole system falls over. So a lot of people who may have had vaccine who are not completely protected are then susceptible to infection. So with measles, we've mm. got to keep the herd immunity above 82% of the the, the community mm. to protect everybody
1: so you're not just doing it for yourself you're doing it for everyone around you as absolutely. well absolutely i mean right. this, this is okay. we're all in,
0: all in this together now mm. i don't remember with whooping cough what the herd immunity has to be there mm. it's probably a bit lower than that you know some years ago there was a, a panic in england where a guy claimed that the measles mumps rubella vaccine was causing autism mm. wakefield that's that means- right So he's since been charged with fraud and Mm. and a bunch of other things. Mm.
1: Struck off the record. That's right. So
0: everybody in England panicked and stopped immunising their kids. Mm. Now, at that stage, even people who were being immunised were starting to get infected. Mm. And you see overflow also in some of the fundamental religious groups who don't believe in immunising. This has happened in the United States and it's happened in the Netherlands. So you get a bit of a flow over from that community Mm. into the immediate community. So with the dengue vaccine, I think... We're not going to be able to just give it to people as it comes along. And I think probably what they'll have to do, or what might work, is if you've got all your grade one children every year Mm, mm. and just immunised them when they came to school Mm. and then boosted them a bit later.
1: I suppose in Australia we have something similar. I I, I assume we do. I don't know if you have any daughters in school age. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, when I was younger, when I was at school, then girls used to get rubella shots. And that was just everyone got them, unless your parents said no. So that's still happening. Parents, can I help me out here? That's
4: you still have to sign up for it. You still you have sign have up to for say it. Say yes, absolutely. They can't give it to them without that
2: approval. Yes, um, but it's still it's still it's offered.
0: Still offered. It's okay. But, so that's good. A Thank you. This issue of herd immunity and things. You know, one of the really lunatic things that happened with the rubella vaccine is they only gave it to girls. Mm. So that left half the community non-immune. Mm. So if you've got all the boys non-protected they're a reservoir for rubella Mm. which then overflows back into the female community the other thing that happened i want that that written on my cv (laughs) gregoire reservoir of rubella
5: the other (laughs) thing that
0: that happened was that rubella in children you know it can be serious but by and large it's a febrile illness and you get over it Mm. but if you get rubella as an adult Mm. you get really sick and you you can get the sort of arthritis you get with ross river infection that goes on for months Mm. So what happened was when we were only immunising the girls, all the boys were getting rubella, but it was happening later in life. Mm. So all of a sudden, you know, I remember in Rockhampton there were about 20 guys in a period of a couple of months all came down with severe arthritis from rubella. Mm. And so then the government came to their senses, of course, and now immunises everybody. And with the MMR vaccine, there's yes. no choice anyway because it's all together. And then you just get your boost later on. Yeah, I think in the developing world where people are slowly... Advancing with the childhood vaccines, mm. there's a, price, a list of priorities of what they'll use first and what they can afford, and rubella's not high on that list of priorities, mm. and so you know they're still having problems with kids born, deaf, blind, congenital heart defects, mm. and all these sorts of things. Um, and I think it's a real mm. wake-up. I think that you know if this all, if our levels of protection fall away, mm. we're going to see these things again. And when our grandson was born, we had to have a whooping cough shot before we could go to the hospital. Yes, yes. And I mean, that, that's fine. I mean, it makes sense. But I mean, it's a sad reflection on our community mm. that this stuff's available and, and we're you not using it. it. Yeah. And the issue, I think, of herd immunity, mm. you know, that if we don't keep the, the level of protection up in the community, a lot of the people who've gone to the trouble of having the vaccine
5: are not going to be protected.
1: Which is, yeah, that's the young and the old and the weak and the sick, which are the people who you really want to protect as much as possible. So once again, you're not just doing it for yourself, you're doing it for everyone else. That's right. That's the important thing to take out of this.
0: I had a, uh, there was a a bit of a symposium at the museum some weeks ago and I was just talking about the morality of immunisation. And and I think there's a whole bunch of decisions to be made. So one of them there is that by not immunising myself, we're not immunising our children it's not just us that's being affected here Mm, mm. this has an impact on the whole community Mm. and so if you don't give your child a rubella shot are you saying that therefore i think it's perfectly acceptable for the lady next door to have a deaf blind child with a congenital heart defect
5: Mm. wow Um, (laughs) okay and so
0: you know i think there's a broader issue here Mm. we're not individuals who are a part of a community community. and i think we need to think you know, as a, as a part of the community, that's very interesting. So your area has been working in vaccines. You've been working on vaccines. Well, I, I guess we 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 worked through that. So in the beginning, we got heavily involved in diagnostics. The blood tests that everybody uses in Australia now to diagnose Ross River, Barmah Forest virus infections mm. came out of our group. Nice. and then the guy who I followed at QUT went off and started a biotech company, mm. and we got some money out of the feds and developed a, a blood test for dengue, and that's sold all around the world now. And so if you can't diagnose a disease, you don't treat it properly. Mm. And if you don't have a decent test, you don't know whether your interventions are working. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, if you have a massive program to try and control dengue, but you've got no reliable way to diagnose dengue cases, yeah. you've got no way of measuring whether what you're doing is working. Sure, yes. So then after that, we thought we'd make a dengue vaccine, and we came to our senses, because, you know, <laughs> we were never going to do that. Because you didn't have the resources? or the Oh, and for a whole bunch of reasons, okay. I mean... Resources is, is just one of them. Right. So, where we're interested now is I was talking about the vaccine strategy. Mm. What we're trying to do is to come up with some hard evidence f- to support a, a strategy which we think would be a, appropriate to use this vaccine. So, instead of, so, you no, know, if you pass to dropping the bundle now and saying it's not going to work, yes, we think they could probably use the same vaccine, just <coughs> use it a bit differently. Right. And then, so when, when the number of Ross River cases went from five a year to 5,000. Yes. That became an issue. So we developed the River vaccine. Right. It's just finished its phase three clinical trials. It's safe. It, mm. it elicits a protective immune response. And so I guess we've moved through diagnostics and, and vaccines. When do you think that would roll out? When somebody pays for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ah, yeah. once again, money is the I mean, issue. Now, these yes. are priorities. I mean, yes. if you're the health minister mm. and there's a 1,001 demands on your budget, mm. you're going to have to prioritise... Where you put your money,
1: mm. and it's not fatal, I guess, as well. That's right. Or permanent damage.
0: And, and you know, an economy like Australia can wear twenty or thirty million dollars a year hit for a disease <laughs> before they start to, to think wow. about doing anything about it. Yes, yeah, and managed. that's about what we're spending on respiratory virus infections a year. Right. Okay. So <laughs> that's you know a, a pragmatic issue. I think mm. the sensible thing would be to roll it out. Mm. But you know, if you look at the other demands on on a health budget, and you've got so much money yeah. in, in the kitty. Coming back then to where we came into this discussion a little bit. So, I've been spending quite a lot of time recently in Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam trying to help them build a, a decent diagnostic system for their pathology services. Mm. And, you know, I teach students about that, and to be able to go and work in a place where you've got $20 million or $50 million to address that problem. Mm. You know there's some tangible outcomes, and you know, I can't, couldn't get the kids to pick up their clothes off the floor, but I can get the Minister of Health in Cambodia to change the way they diagnose something, you know. And so, there's some satisfaction in that, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it's, it's been interesting too just to teach you to prioritize
5: things. Mm. I'll
0: give you a, an example here a lot of parasitic diseases in these kids, are, you know, gut parasites, and so the decision is. Should we try and diagnose this in these kids? And the answer is no. 90% of them have got gun parasites, so you assume everybody's got them, mm. and you line the kids up at school twice a year and give them an anti parasitic medicine. Mm. It's free, or some of it's free, because the companies that make it make a huge profit on selling the medicine for dog heartworm. And they make the medicine free of charge in right. the developing world. Um, <laughs> that's nice of them. That's
1: good. Oh, that's um, Yay, dogs. I take back my horrible things I said about your dogs. Number four, you killed
0: people, but you've led to... So I think it's good. The, one of the places you know, I'm, I'm getting a buzz at the moment is working in those sorts of settings. Hmm. And, you know, my students all think high-tech, and, you know, we had a quiz before. So in Laos and Cambodia, when we decided we needed to do something about the labs, what do you think the first piece of equipment was that I bought? nearly washing machines Uh, (laughs) because everybody's just taking their clothes home to wash them so you get an outbreak of (laughs) SARS and somebody's got stuff all over their coats and they're taking them home to wash them and I learned something, who in the room knows which sort of washing machines can and can't make hot water why don't my car? It's only the front loaders that can make their hot water, all the top loaders, you've got to have a hot water supply. Mm. <laughs> so, we bought a whole lot of front loaders so people can wash their clothes. So, I mean, I think that's sort of really practical prioritisation. Mm. I had to learn that, but it's an interesting set of lessons and, and it's really terrifying stuff. HIV kits in the labs that are out of date or don't work. And so, you say to people, well, oh, look, this is a bit of a high risk pastime, isn't it? Mm. I said, oh, we. We bought the kids, so we've got to sell them, you know, otherwise we don't get the money back. And we can't afford to do that. And so people are discovering that they don't have HIV because the test's done, and then they spread it forever. And so, yeah. yeah, you know, how you break a, a model, and, you know, the, the United Nations model is co-funding. So it doesn't matter how poor you are, you've got to pay something for the tests. Mm. And so if the test's no good. I had a, a tense discussion. This can go on the record, it doesn't matter. I had a tense discussion with... Uh, the Deputy Health Minister in Laos over some of this stuff and he he really wasn't taking an interest. And so I said look some of the people who need these tests are the the poorest of the poor. That's right. So if they pay for an HIV test and it doesn't work it's no good to them is it? And he said no I don't suppose so. And So I said so you're telling me that it's Ministry of Health Policy to steal money from the poorest people in Laos. Uh, (laughs) So Ah. it was a bit quiet for a while, and so we we moved on. But I mean, I think that sort of grasp, if the test doesn't work or the medicine doesn't work, it's not just a fancy that. Mm. You know, somebody has borrowed money on a lot of occasions. I mean, people lose their farms because they borrow money to buy medicine and pay for a blood test, and it's the wrong test. It's the wrong answer. It's the wrong medicine. Mm. They can't repay the loan. They lose their farm and their kid dies. Mm. There's a cycle here that really has to be broken. Talk mm.
1: well, about second and third world countries. And I just want to, try to compare it to Australia, which is a first world country. Do you think that people not vaccinating their kids and, and being worried about it is A, based on too much information but from the wrong source, and B, it's not visible anymore? Uh, for example, I, when I was in school, because I'm old, I read, I can jump puddles. Yep. I have an idea of what happens if you get polio. You have to wear those braces and it seemed quite horrific and you can't jump a puddle and it's very terrible. But people have no idea what these diseases mean anymore. Yep. So, so you go, well, why bother getting vaccinated when no one in the whole world, in your world, seems to have it? Yes. We're in third world countries where they do have it. Everyone's like, give us this medicine. Yes. Is, is that a way of thinking about? it? I think that's
0: true. I mean, I think... And, you know, it's a bit like Ross River, you know, when you Mm. talk about a vaccine, it's one of those things that people say, yeah, I wish I had the vaccine after they get sick. Yes. And, you know, (laughs) so if, if somebody winds up with a child permanently mentally disabled from measles, they think it would have been a good idea to have a vaccine. And I, and I don't know how you address that issue.
1: Is there going to be a terrible moment where we're going to have, in first world countries, visible diseases returning, and then everyone goes... We've got oh, it already. We've got measles and whooping cough. Yes, yeah. And that's yeah, a good point. And so it's going to reach a point where people will then start to respond, and go, I don't want that anymore. And, and so it has to be like a pushback. There's a, a feedback loop what I'm trying to say here.
0: But I think... And I think one of the issues and, and one of the, the reasons that the anti-vaccine lobby gets traction is certainly the old whooping cough vaccine... You know, had a significant adverse event rate. Mm, mm. And, you know, CSL's flu vaccine a couple of years ago for reasons nobody understands had some adverse reactions. Mm. And I think one child died. Mm. Now, if you're a parent, this is the morality issue. You know, you're making a decision for your child. Mm, mm. You're, you're saying, OK, there's a one in a million chance or one in ten million chance that my child will have an adverse reaction to this. Mm. I'm not going to take that risk. I mean, there's a really interesting issue here with smallpox. The smallpox eradication program probably killed about 10,000 people and probably caused a million adverse events. If we hadn't eradicated smallpox when we could, we couldn't have. Because with the incidence of HIV now you couldn't use the vaccine. So you know there was a moment in time with smallpox and, and that's been eradicated.
1: If so it can be done You can, if you put the resources to it and the political will
0: and the, and the societal will but I, I think if, if somebody put those figures on the table before they started the eradication program mm. 10,000 be, people dying yeah. this is going to kill 10,000 people it mm. wouldn't have happened
1: Right. I suppose then you get known as the minister or the the, the, the clinician who allows ten thousand people to die.
0: I mean, a, a vaccine like that today would be just totally unacceptable.
1: Mm. But, but how many they, people survive? Like how many people absolutely. survive? How many people are saved? What's what's it's, the what are we looking at here? What's risk versus Millions of people have
0: been saved. Yes. Yeah. But you know, if it's your child that's going to die with this vaccine, yeah. And, and so I think you know this is the really interesting and perplexing social dilemma you know as a parent you're making a decision and the vaccines we've got now have an infinitesimally small risk they're not smallpox Mm. vaccines and so some of the people who are opposing immunization are trotting out these risks and you know it it frightens people and i've grown up with the business and I, i can weigh up the risks and so on but yes you know there's an awful lot of people being asked to make a decision without the sort of information and the background that i've got and so it tends to be an emotive decision So is your plan then to go house to house? Is that what you're saying here? No. What I do with this (laughs) lot is my students will answer a question every year on their exam paper Hmm. on the recommended immunisation schedule for Australians. They know it's on the exam paper every year and they know it's a dead certain ten marks if they get it right. So I just (laughs) hope that when they graduate and have some kids of their own, I say, gee, that guy used to bang on about immunization, didn't he? <laughs> you know, maybe we ought to look at that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's advocacy really.
1: Not not badgering people, I suppose,
0: just pointing out the facts all the time and showing yeah, what what's actually going on. I mean teaching's a really interesting pastime. You know, you tend to put the oil on the on the squeaky wheels, but there's some real flashes of, of light at times. And I met one of my students a couple of weeks ago who started the Queensland branch as a skeptics association. Mm. And their first project was to go to the North Coast, record an anti-immunisation talk, mm. transcribe it and then address each of the issues raised right. and post it online. And so these guys don't have the axe to grind, I guess, that I have because I teach it no mm. it's my business. But so it was nice to see you know, a bunch of folk who are in the next generation feel that this is important mm. this is something we should do and we should address it logically and rationally and Mm. things like that. But at the end of the day, people are going to have to make up their own minds for their own kids. But it Mm. it may not just be your child. Yeah. It may be somebody else's child. Yes. Who gets sick and dies. I mean, one of the, the technicians who works for me... Her grandchild very nearly died from whooping cough because, as you know, the first injections at six months. Mm, mm. And so the, the, the baby time. got whooping cough before six months mm. and very nearly died. Mm. And that was a, a totally preventable episode. Mm. And so,
1: it's, you know. If the people around them had only. Fascinated against them. It's funny, it's becoming more prevalent. Uh, friends of mine had a baby, uh, and I wasn't allowed near it. They said, Oh, have you had your whooping, whooping cough? And I had to go, Oh,
5: no, I had it.
1: Yeah. And they went, Well, you can't come near our child. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, Oh, point. Then it was okay until they'd reached that point of immunization. So at least people are now, seem to be, younger people especially, seem more aware of it that, that that's something that they have to protect themselves. Even, even though the child could be immunized later on, people like me unfortunately hadn't had it in time. So, yeah. so I think, you
0: know, so for, for me, I guess, a scientific career has been a work in progress. Mm. So you, know, you tend to start off with a tremendous attention on minutiae mm. and what fascinates you about the, the little bits and pieces. But I think you know, as you go along, or for me anyway, I think mm. the big picture is becoming more interesting. Uh, well, not more interesting, but I mean, th- I certainly have an interest in that and, and certainly being given an opportunity to, to play in, at a national level mm. in a developing country. D- to hopefully direct things. That's right. I mean, and it's interesting mm. how technology comes on. One of the Cambodians that I work with, this lady I was talking to you about, mm. often needs some help. So I showed her how to use Skype. <laughs> and so now she Skypes me quite regularly, and there's some things I can do and there's some things I can't do. You know, it's just a link now mm. that she's got out of her situation that she wouldn't have had before. Yes, yeah. I and mean, so I think those sorts of things are important.
1: can make connections. Oh, that's excellent. Now, I'm going to
0: throw it open to the group.
1: Are there any questions that you'd like to ask... Our esteemed panelists here about immunisation, or is microbiology, or any of these things that you'd like to think about, anything at all?
3: Why is the government not enforcing immunisation? When when I lived in South Africa, you had a choice: your children were immunised. That was it. You got the lot, and and there was never any argument. And to me, yeah, I, I had two daughters, and they both got human cough. Anybody that doesn't want to Immunise their child against whooping cough should see two children about three or four years of age at two o'clock in the morning not able to breathe, yeah. and I guarantee they'll be up the next morning and, and get their children immunised. I, I guess that question is
0: semi-rhetorical because, as you as I know, there's more mysteries about government than you it's and very I very are very going right. to answer in our lifetime. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, compulsion usually doesn't work and it causes all sorts of grief. One of the ways around this would be to have a far more realistic compensation system. Now, you know, in the United States, America can't make enough vaccines for itself, so it's importing vaccines from Vietnam and India and things like that. And the reason for that is, is the litigation. And so everybody's just become so litigious that the vaccine companies couldn't afford to sell vaccines. And the Americans have stepped in a little bit now with, with some sort of mandatory compensation. I think the way that you might do something about this is if we had some sort of a, a compensation scheme for adverse events that didn't require endless litigation, didn't take years of grief and whatever else. I mean, if a parents had some sort of an adverse reaction with a a child or a vaccine and so on, you know, they don't need to be messed about by some bureaucrat who's just come back from a course on social awareness or something. So, you know, maybe a, a sensible compensation scheme. The difficulty with that, though, is that, you know, once you start to look at a population level, you start to then get chance associations. So, for example, Ian Fraser was going to put his papillomavirus vaccine, I think, into Bhutan, and there was a flap that had been four deaths in India associated with the vaccine, and it turned out that two of them had been run over by a car, and I forget what the <laughs> other ones were. And, and, so love you know, shouldn't laugh. <laughs> they were totally unrelated to the vaccine. That's a heck of a vaccine. But, but, but the paper had picked those up. And, and the whole program stopped. But again, you know, you might argue that a wealthy country like Australia could afford to pay compensation to some folk, even if the link wasn't absolutely certain on the, on the side that it would encourage a, a lot of other people to do it. So that would be one approach, I think.
1: So would it be... I mean, because part of me... we are saying tonight and being honest about there are adverse reactions to vaccines on yep. a very small percentage. We have to be honest about yep, that. Yep. And so we had to kind of say, look, it will most likely not do anything, but there is a chance it could do this, and we have to be honest and adult about yep. what it is. But if you don't do it, here are the problems that could lead in later life for you and for everyone around you. And yeah. maybe treat people like adults and not treat them like mushrooms. Yeah, I, I
0: think... But I think that the... And, and the, compensa- the compensation needs to be managed so that, you know, people are not messing about and you know, scrabbling, trying to pay for things and whatever else. You know, it's sort of like a a gold card, the person who means that they're going to get the assistance they need for the, for the rest of their life mm. without endless wrangling, I think.
1: Mm. interesting. Any other questions?
4: I happen to know that you've worked with the army, is that correct? I am
0: working with the oh, army, yes.
4: Through, I'm just curious what you're doing with the army.
0: Uh, well, when we went into Timor, the army, like every other organisation, forgets all the lessons of the past and so they walked into a lot of malaria and a lot of dengue. And so the army asked me if I'd like to—I uh, had a beard at that stage—take a beard off and come and set up a, a lab to look at mosquito-borne viral diseases. You're not allowed to have a beard. Uh, not unless you're an assault pioneer sergeant, and then you carry an axe as well. But. We, 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 we digress a bit. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so they, they asked me to come and set up a lab to look at mosquito-borne viral diseases, which were a, a problem for the Australian Defence Force. So one of the first things we did there was a clinical trial for a, a new Japanese encephalitis vaccine. So the, the soldiers who were being deployed up until about 2000 had a really... oh, I mean, the whole world had a terrible Japanese encephalitis vaccine. It was made in the brains of baby mice and then cleaned up and whatever. Yes. And so the same guy, in fact, who made the Nofi Dengue vaccine, made six vaccines, and the Japanese encephalitis one was one of them. And so it had already had the phase one and phase two trials done, so we knew it was going to be okay. So we did the phase three trials here. And so Australia became the first country in the world to license that. And so you can have a single shot and travel two weeks later and you've still got 80% protection after five years, and if you have two shots, you've got 90% protection after five years. And there's a a, a bit of a a sideline to that too. That was the first genetically modified organism for intentional release in humans in Australia, and nobody had legislation that matched. Mm -hmm. And I was really lucky to have a young captain who'd uh, been a student at QUT as well, and he spent two years of his life trying to get the legislation to line up it was an important lesson to me, and he, the frustration level at one stage just boiled over. And he wrote the most wonderful letter, you know, reflecting on the parentage of people who work in an organisation like this almost, <laughs> and said to me, do you want to have a look at that before I send it? He said, you can't send that. So I said, why don't you tell them what they ought to be doing? And he said, oh, they wouldn't take any bloody notice. And So anyway, he wrote a letter and made the suggestions, and, and quarantine and, and the... Genetic engineering people wrote back, thanked him for his suggestions, said, Do you mind if we adopt some of those? And so he effectively wrote some of the legislation which let us uh, go ahead with with the vaccine. So I was very, very grateful for that young man. I mean, and again, you know, at a university, I couldn't have had somebody for two years Mm. to tackle that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. When Australia decided to broaden its diplomatic engagement with Vietnam, Beyond just the things that we were doing, uh, they started a defence cooperation project with the Vietnamese Army. If I'd had a different birthday, I would have been a national serviceman in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and so I wound up working with a bunch of people who might have been shooting at me if I uh, had been a national serviceman. And it was a wonderful time. I mean, again, those people had had fascinating lives under really terrible conditions, and we worked all over Vietnam looking at dengue problems. There, so it's been a lot of fun. It's a great place to work. And what what rank do you hold? I'm a major. You're a
1: major? Oh, goodness me and any other questions yes
6: hi my husband and i had an opportunity to work in southern sudan um, about 15 years ago and we had all vaccinations and we thought we were going in there for short term about a year or so and and then it became more interesting so we stayed longer and longer and we were working with excellent people and a lot of them were kenyan locals and they were saying to us, "Right, you have to stop taking the malaria prophylaxis. It's not good for your liver. It's not good for this." We've grown up with malaria. We'll know the signs. We'll we'll look after you. And my husband came down with malaria, and a whole lot of others did in one location, and and I didn't. And then we moved location, different group of people, different water sources. Presumably similar mal- um, malaria.
0: Parasites. Yeah. Yes.
6: And, again, they all went down, and I was watching them, okay, no malaria this time. And so then volunteers had come from all around the world, and each one coming from a different culture would come with their theories. And one theory that was offered was that your blood type, uh, this particular blood type, do you have that one? I said, yes, actually, I do happen to have that blood type, which is A-positive, and they said, oh, well, you might be. And I never heard any...
0: Further, whether that was uh, valid, look, yeah. I'm, I'm not a parasitologist, and so I'm not going to mislead you. Right. If you talk to me afterwards, I'll give you a phone number uh, okay. to talk to somebody who who might be able to tell you something. But
1: okay. I tried to say that um, yay for the A positive lot of times Yay for us. Oh look, wow, there's a quite a large percentage of us in the room. Really? One, two, three, four, five, six. Have yes. you all eight. had malaria? And then, uh, I've never had malaria. Anyone put your hand up if you had malaria? I've lived in a country, Malaysia, where they had malaria. Now, this, this is not a significant sample size. I'm not, I'm not trying to advocate anything at this point. I'm just intrigued. It's only that, that impede our... No, no, no. <laughs> you are getting excited about nothing. Yes, <laughs> it is I'm just, just... I know people who listen to the podcast later are going, oh, for
3: goodness sake. John, are you the person we see on the ABC with the, you know, you've got the big netted box and they push their arm in about 1,000 mosquitoes? You, you, you saw one of those
0: a long time ago. I suspect that the one you're seeing regularly that's being recycled came out of QIMR and I think that's probably Brian Kowe's arm.
3: <laughs> every time I see it like a... <laughs> yeah,
0: it's like, someone's got to feed these animals. Yeah, that's you've
3: right.
1: Got to,
0: you've got to go, uh, oh, it's feeding time. In wow. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not quite as easy as that, actually, because <laughs> there was a time when you just put the mosquitoes in a, a, a wax cup and put them under your shirt and went to morning tea. <laughs> uh, but oh no, we, we now have work, workplace health and safety people. <laughs> um, who, who Yay! Who, Thank who, who won't ala- allow that? And so there's there's all sorts of issues now about how you you're going to feed your mosquitoes. Yeah. That's, how, so how do you feed a mosquito then? I uh, can feed them on shaved guinea pigs and. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and
1: who gets to do that job? of shaving who are you I'm the guinea pig shaver what oh well
0: whoever wants to feed the mosquitoes really <laughs> I mean and some I mean all your PhD students going well, what the have... heck it's many years of me <laughs> they're the ones whose stomachs are probably being partly protected but no I mean I mean there was a time when we used to catch mosquitoes like that so you'd, you'd go outside and you'd just sit down and pull your trousers up and see what got on your legs but again, Science. that's not permitted anymore either. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I wonder why are there any more questions? oh yes oh,
4: <laughs> John, just a question about dengue if you're infected with dengue, do you acquire immunity?
0: There's, if you get dengue four times there's four different viruses usually it's the second or third infection when you get really sick fortunately they're called 1, 2, 3 and 4 so, so, so if, you get, if you've had a dengue 1 infection you'll never get dengue 1 again uh, if you've had a Dengue 2 and so on, you never get that again. But if, you've got a, if you have a Dengue 1 and you get a Dengue 2, the likelihood is you'll get really very sick. Or,
5: hemorrhagic
0: uh, Yeah, that's right. So you're about 80 times as likely to get hemorrhagic Dengue on your second or third infection as you are on your first. And yes, you have a question as
4: well? I was wondering if the, a way of persuading the anti-vaccinators, a friend of mine sent me an article from the Autism Journal, yeah an American paediatrician has been vaccinating the children one disease at a time not including all the vaccines together even though she claimed that her sample was not yet big enough to be statistically significant the journal felt the results she was getting in the reduction in rates of autism was enough to warrant them publishing this article with her so, you know, it was a peer-reviewed yeah. article and all of that. But oh, and she didn't give the babies the Hep B vaccine, the newborns, unless the mother had hepatitis.
0: I think that's the, the policy here, that if the mum's not Hep B positive, you don't get your Hep B vaccine at birth.
4: Right. Is that right? I don't think I don't. that's right. OK, all right. Yeah. If, if I've misled
0: you, I'm sorry, but I, coming well, back... I don't...
4: I'm not in that area anymore. My grandchildren are... In my, area. my
0: understanding was... And there was a debate at one stage over the level of hep B positive mothers in Australia. So initially you didn't get the hep B positive vaccine, you didn't get the hep B vaccine in birth. When did it come
5: in?
0: Oh, it's been around for a long time. But then because we've got a fairly large or an increasing migrant population, we're getting a lot more hep B positive mums. And so then you know, rather than trying to work out whether the mum was happy, positive or not, they just give it to everybody and that gets over the problem. So it may be now that all mums get it. I'm just not sure about that. But picking up the issue, I think there's two things. One is that when you spread the vaccines out, the kids are turning up over and over and over and over again. So the reason for putting these together was to try and look. And the other thing is that there's an assumption that there's a link between these vaccines and autism. And I think the evidence is very, very clear. There's no link whatever. So the argument that there's a reduction in the rate of autism if you spread it out means there must have been a, an, an association to start with. And, but uh, I
4: think she was trying to make sure that the kids got vaccinated. Yep, yep. And she thought she'd give it a try. I mean, I I, I think don't think she had any opinion yeah, one way
0: yeah. or another. Look, I mean, I think. Well, it's, it's, you couldn't now get your measles, mumps, and rubella separately because the, the trivalent vaccine is the way it is so to, to take that apart now if you were a, a, a mum or a dad who wanted to do that well
4: she's American
0: yeah it would, would be difficult the other thing we just rang some alarm bells there it was when Wakefield got struck off in England over the MMR autism mm-hmm. link some American woman paid him 30 million dollars to move to the United States and set up a oh yes I know yes, yes,
4: yes. Yeah. Like, look I, I, I'm in my 70s my mother had siblings die of diphtheria yes you know so mm, I think yeah. that's
0: Essential. Yes, I need to see the data and things, but I think that the problem is just getting...
4: She, ca- she herself felt yep. it was too...
3: Uh, yep, 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 yep,
5: yep, yep. Mm.
3: I, I can remember when I was really small, when the mothers heard that the um, this, um, measles was on, you would all get sent to the mother of that child's place, and we we'll all played there for a couple of days, and then came out. Mm. Yeah. measles. Yes.
1: <laughs> and unfortunately, this is—I've seen this, it horrifies me. But the concept of measles parties does exist today, when you, you kids get sick, and then parents take their kids to get the disease, and you sit there and go, "What? <laughs> What's going on?" Yeah. But yes, this
0: is something that goes on in the twenty-first century, and it horrifies me on a mighty level. Well, I think you know, with measles particularly, because you know, there's about a one in ten thousand chance that those kids are going to get subacute closing panic encephalitis and die with terrible neurological disease in their teenage years so you know, measles is not a disease to be trifled with mm.
5: <laughs>
1: and with that <laughs> exciting look at, at the baby boomers yelling once again at Gen Y and Gen X yes. we, we might end up there ladies and gentlemen can you please put your hands together for Professor Major <laughs> Dr John Ascombe
3: <laughs> thank you very much
1: Thank you to Dr. John Askov for that exciting interview about vaccines, about mosquito-borne diseases, and about getting angry about anti-vaxxers. That was the best part. Ah, uh, right. I'd like to point out just a full disclosure, full disclosure. The man who gets really angry about anti-vaxxers and says rude words, that is my father. I will... <laughs> right. i just like to point out. So uh, thank you to my father. <laughs> thank you to all the people who came along. It was a really interesting experience to to chat to an eminent uh, doctor about his work, even though he wasn't actually the man who gave you your superpowers.
2: Yeah. yeah. so sort of sad. But then that guy must have been an imposter. <laughs> What the hell did he jab me with?
1: (laughs) Uh, So also thank you to the Brisbane City Council Library Service for letting us use the Kenmore Library for the taping. and also What else are they going to use it for? Lending books? (laughs) And also thanks to Inspiring Australia, who set up the whole concept of Café Scientifique. If you're in Australia and you want to learn something about science in all sorts of different disciplines, go to Inspiring Australia on Google. Just type in inspiring, Inspiring Australia. Or check them out in the show notes. Or check them out in the show notes. And, of course just type in cafe scientifique and you'll get some nibblies when you go and it's free normally and you get to talk to cool scientists and some people like myself will be there and dan will be there as well So that was pretty cool i thought our first foray into in real life interviews or living interviews or i don't know what you call that wait where am i going to be audience interviews was
2: it following why am i going to be where 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 am i going to be where what am i going to this scientific cafe thing no 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 it's done it's already done so i wasn't there i know so where am I going to be? I don't, I don't you
1: just said that I was going to be somewhere. I don't know what I don't know. That's, okay, that's very confusing.
2: That's all right. It's all recorded. I'm sure I'll figure it out. It'll make perfect sense. You have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. And Greg at smartenough.org. You can follow us on Twitter at
1: SE2KB. And Facebook at slash SE2KB. And you can go to iTunes and rate us. Of course, definitely rate us. Just rate us, just rate us, rate us highly. But not just that. We have something else to promote. Something very exciting. Something very, very exciting. Smartenough to know better has been asked to join a comedy slash science panel... For Briz Science. I like to slash science. We all, we all like to comedy slash it. As, I comedy slash
2: it like people slash through the jung- jungle while they're looking for Dr. Livingston. That's right, I presume.
1: You may remember oh, we've interviewed in the past Dr. Joel Gilmore twice, I do believe, and he's a friend of the show. And we. Three times. Three times. Therefore, he's an official friend of the show. Oh, yeah. And uh, Dr. Joel got in contact with us and said, Would we take part uh, in a panel of scientists talking, having a comedy debate about science? And we went, Yeah, we can bring lots of science. And he went, oh no, we, we want you to be funny. We went, oh dear, oh that's dear, that's up. But anyway, so it's called 365 and a quarter days of science, the science of 2014. It shall be at the edge at the State Library of Queensland in South Brisbane for those which is in Australia. For those who don't realise, 7:30 to 9:30 Monday the 13th of October. Cost is fifteen dollars. Numbers are strictly limited, so make sure you have a look at it. So just go to Briz Science. Yeah. Type in Briz Science one word B R. R-I-S-S-C-I-N-C-E Or check out the show notes at or, smartenough.org. It's like we're
2: organized. Fantastic. And it's not just going to be Greg and I there, because all the other people on the panel, they're so, proper scientists. That's right. Let me read them out to you. We have Dan Beeston. Who's Dan Beeston? That's
1: me. We have Associate Professor Tamara Davis, who's awesome, actually. It's very, very, very good. I like Tamara Davis. I've talked to her before. Oh, We've talked to her not on the podcast, but I've talked to her in real life. Anyway, Dr. Melanie McKenzie, Dr. Andrew Stevenson, Professor Andrew White, and Greg Guar, of course, and Dr. Joel Gilmore, and oh. they're all science communicators as well. They're all so we are very much out of our yes, so out- outgunned. It's going to be fantastic. Now, what I'm hoping is they will put Dan and I on separate teams because then we can go hard for each other. Then we can just like slash each other's like just, just open it. Get our big let's science
2: make it really awkward. Yeah, for yeah all I, the I, think
1: other so. I think like we had a terrible breakup, like a really really awkward breakup, and we'll use our science talent to gut each other and like and drop our science entrails all over the floor. Oh, what, looking... did, what what what? What's the difference between a normal talent and a science talent? Well, well, a normal talent can actually gut you. A science talent just destroys your credibility. Oh, well, I'm up for that. Yeah. <laughs> My credibility is paper thin already. Woo! I'm going to win. <laughs> but come along, uh, 13th of October. I'm sure we'll talk more about it between here and then. Anyway, and as we always like to say, science talents destroys your credibility. Oh, yuck. That's the whole point oh. of the clock. So they, they did they Astronomy's
3: stupid
1: <laughs> Dan comes from the fifties. He's in black and white. He'll be calling us from the past. <laughs> Dateline. line
2: sixteen seventy six. <1676. laughs> the speed of light is finite.